Huntsville first. We're so excited you're joining us for worship this morning. We're going to jump in this morning with some music. We invite you to stand and join us as we sing.
this together.
ask you to turn and pass the peace of Christ to those around you. joining us on the live stream this morning. Hello. Welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hi to everyone who didn't join the live stream as well. We're going to do a song that is not new to the world, but it is new to us here at the Contemporary Service. We hope you enjoy this song. Sing along as you catch on. It's a great song of joy and praise to our God.
invite you to grab a seat and enjoy this stewardship video. here at Noblesville First, and I am super excited to talk to you today about our Easter extravaganza. We're super excited to not only bring back the Noblesville First tradition of community-wide egg hunt, but make it bigger and better than ever. We'll be inviting our Noblesville First families as well as the community members out to Teeter Organic Farm on April 16th from 10.30 to 12. We'll be offering free games and crafts and inflatables, three egg hunt fields, and free goodie bags for every person who attends, filled with Easter treats and information about Noblesville First. In order to make this event a reality, we need volunteers to help with everything from parking to running a game station to hiding Easter eggs to welcoming guests at registration. Basically, if you want something to do on April 16th, we have a place for you to serve. And you can pick just the right spot for you using our Sign Up Genius link online or reaching out to me personally. But whether or not you can help us during the Easter egg hunt, you can help us make this event a success by donating non-chocolate candy and small prizes for the goodie bags. Providing non-chocolate candy and small toys allows us to accommodate allergies and abilities of all the children who might attend our Easter egg hunt. Please bring in all of the donations for the Easter egg hunt by April 10th to my office. We're super grateful for this opportunity to share the meaning of Easter with our community. Thank you so much for helping us bring this vision to reality. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Noblesville First again. I'm Matt Hantelman, one of the pastors here at Noblesville First. And I'm really glad that you're joining us for worship this morning. Just a couple more announcements as we gather here. Uh, Easter is only two weeks away, believe it or not. So next week is Palm Sunday. We'll have our normal worship schedule. Um, and then on Easter, we have a bit of a different worship schedule where we are going to be doing a contemporary service in here at 945 only. And we will have three traditional services at 8:39, 45, and 11 down in the sanctuary. This is because generally we find that most people like maybe a more traditional Easter with a big choir and an organ and an orchestra, and we have that available. So if you'd like to join us for contemporary worship on Easter, we definitely invite you to do it. We just ask that you try to be here at 945 for that. And if you're looking for something, I know personally, if, if you were me, which some of you are not, um, <laughs> you, would, you might even try to hit the 945 contemporary and then the 11 o'clock traditional in the sanctuary. I, I know the thing that drew me into this church as... I was going to say a young kid and like act like I was short when I was younger. I wasn't. When I was like 14 and like here. <laughs> um, what drew me into this church was the choir and the organ in the old sanctuary. So we invite you to join us on Easter and worship however it is that you want to worship with us at those times. Other announcements include our Dinners on Us team is happy to announce that we are now able to serve dinner back in person again. We're so excited to start up to continue that ministry in a new way post-COVID. So starting this coming Thursday from 5 to 6, right over here in Wesley Hall, we have a free dinner for anyone. There are no requirements. There are no expectations. Anyone who'd like to come and eat. So come yourself. Invite your friends. Invite whoever would like to come and share in fellowship and a free meal with us. We do ask if you if you are interested in it. We're always looking for volunteers for that ministry. Um, it, it usually takes about four to five people each week to help set up, to serve, excuse me, and to clean up, usually for about two hours from 4.30 to 6.30. 
No cooking skills required. You don't have to make the food from scratch. It's usually just reheating some things. Maybe you might have to use a can opener. So if you don't know how to do that, we can teach you. How's that? Is that perfect? So if you'd be willing to volunteer, you can actually denote that on your connection card. If you didn't grab a connection card on your way in, we definitely invite you to grab one. They're back on the table. Um, And that's the way you can tell us that you're here, as well as ways you can get involved with all of the different ministries here at Noblesville First. We have a ton of stuff going on. We only put a couple of those on the connection card. You can check out all of our ministries on our website. One of the other things going on right now, speaking of ministries that we have, is the White River Elementary Snack Drive. Uh, We are donors to that program. Currently, there's over 50 students on the snack pack list, which means... Over 250 snacks go out a week, and this is not just after school, but it's also for weekend snacks. This is actually a ministry that helps kids who may not have enough food to have food on a daily basis, and so it is a very important ministry, and we definitely invite you to check that out. You can go to our website, noblesvillefirst.com, and go either backslash snacks or find this card on the home page to find out more of how you can help donate snacks or ways that you can get involved with the White River Elementary program that we have. And then finally, if you are new to us and you'd like to know more, or if you've been here for years and you still would like to know more, we're all in that boat. I I feel like you can check out on the same website. You can go to noblesofirst.com and find the next steps card that'll help you get involved, get plugged in, find ways if you'd like to become members with us, if you'd like to get involved in ministries, anything that you would like to do to know more about Noblesville First, we definitely invite you to, to check that out. If you have questions this morning specifically, you can come and talk to me. You can talk to, I think, see Pastor Jerry back there. You can talk to him. Or you can see our hospitality coordinator, Pam, who's right here. There she is. She's waving. So you can, you can talk to Pam, and she'll be able to, if she can't answer your question directly, she can definitely connect you to the right people for how we can best both serve you at Noblesville First and get you involved to serve others. So, with that being said, I invite you now to enjoy our Lord's Prayer video for this morning. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth. As as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and what. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine in this kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in our fifth week of our Lenten series on the Lord's Prayer. And over the past four weeks, we've talked at length about a prayer that many of us have probably prayed hundreds, if not thousands of times in our life. It's fascinating to me how something that has that much commonality can still hold so much untapped wisdom. And I can say that amongst the pastors here, I am not alone, that when I say even I have been learning a lot of new things from the Lord's Prayer as we study, because we truly do have a living word that we can always gain new information from and new wisdom as we move forward in our lives. My hope for all of you is that this series has brought new life, not only to the Lord's Prayer, but to prayer in general, and that you can approach prayer in a fresh way through what we've learned together. 
And we've learned quite a bit, I feel like, over the past four weeks so far. Pastor Jill initially helped us learn about the intimacy with which we approach God, calling his name hallowed or holy. We learned about the promise that we are ultimately making to God in praying for God's kingdom to come and our part in it, and that we can share in God's heart for the world through God's will. We heard Pastor Jerry explain that our daily bread is as much a call for us to limit ourselves for the provision of a community as it is for us to be provided for. We learned that forgiveness is truly complete and finished, and that can give us the strength to reach out as God reaches out in love. And through it all, we've seen that this prayer isn't just a prayer asking for God to act, but is also a promise to God that we will work to act more and more like Christ and live more and more like we are in God's kingdom. Pastor Jerry also spent some time helping us understand the importance of the prayer saying us instead of I, that this is a communal prayer about a community of believers. What an incredible short few lines this prayer is. And this morning we come to an end of the prayer as it appears in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Years ago when I was in college, I heard a sermon on this passage that has stuck with me ever since. The main point was simple. Generally, the pastor said, regardless of the words that come out of our mouths when we pray this, our hearts pray this part of the prayer backwards. The prayer has two parts, this part of it. The first part talks about where we are going, and the second is about where we end up. When we say, lead us in the first part, tell us where to go, help us find the right path, and then we move on to deliver us, get us out of where we ended up, which wasn't where we were supposed to be in the first place. We don't want to be where we are, God. Can you please help? So the first half is talking about the path we are walking and wanting to stay rightly on it, and the second recognizes we're going to screw that up. So if I were to modernize this, maybe put it in more contemporary language, I might say this prayer is, God, help me not to go anywhere near temptation. I don't want to be on the same side of this road as that. And the closer I get, the worse off I'll be. And God, I know that there will be times when I fall into places that mean me harm. There is evil in the world, and when it rises around me, I need you to help me get out of it. But a lot of times I feel like we flipped the script. We get it backwards. And instead what we're really thinking is lead me not into evil, but deliver me from temptation. It might sound like this. God, don't, be, don't put me anywhere near evil or hardship or bad stuff. I don't want my life to be hard. I need you to keep me away from those things. I don't want it. And you have to keep me safe from it. But then that temptation, hmm, it's kind of alluring, right? I mean, I don't want to do anything about it. I just, I just kind of want, I want to be next to it. I want to, I want to feel the, the, I want to feel the good part of that temptation feeling. And then once I have, before I make a silly mistake, get me out of there. I just want to, I want to butt up against temptation. And then I want you to have me just straight out. 
Do you see the difference in those two? The prayer that Jesus teaches recognizes that evil exists and it will befall us. And in those moments, we can pray to God for help and peace. But it also encourages us to pray that we would have the strength to avoid temptation altogether. Because again, this is not just a request of God, but it's also us claiming our part as well. Because we don't actually need to pray for God to not lead us into temptation. God wasn't going to do that anyway. Right? God doesn't tempt us, nor does that seem to be God's intent or desire. So if we're not saying, God, don't, we're not saying, God, I know you might have thought about leading me into temptation. Please don't do that. That's not what we're getting at here, right? So the only thing left in the prayer that could be trying to lead us into temptation is us. It's us. We are the ones trying to lead ourselves into temptation. And we're saying, God, don't let that happen, please. And I don't necessarily mean you and you and you. I mean us, Right? If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard me talking about how in the times of Jesus and before, sin was understood to be a much more communal idea. It wasn't this individual wrongdoing. They recognized that the individual wrongdoing affected the community as a whole. You can't be wrong in a vacuum. It has consequences. It has fingers that spread out. And misery loves company. The more it happens, the more the temptation spreads, the more the community goes in the wrong direction. And the continued transformation to looking like the kingdom of God becomes harder. So Jesus invites us to pray about us. Paul says something similar in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, he says, Brothers and sisters, if a person is caught doing something wrong, you who are spiritual should restore someone like this with a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourselves so you won't be tempted to. Carry each other's burdens so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul understood that the urge to join in when someone else was doing something wrong is strong. He understood that when we see people doing things that are not what we're supposed to be doing, it might be alluring. It might look like in that moment it's better or more fun or more joy-giving. And Paul says, if you see somebody doing that, go to them, but be careful because you might get caught up in it too. But he does say, go to them and restore them gently. We could do a whole sermon on that one word in this verse, I feel like, and how we, as in general, are not very good at gently. We'll leave that for another time. So lead us not into temptation is a prayer asking God to help us not move in a direction away from God. One of the things that can make understanding passages like this difficult is the way that language has evolved over time. In the Hebrew Old Testament, for example, there were no vowels, there were no spaces, and everything was read backwards. I'm serious. Think think about that in English. Take a book, remove all the vowels, remove all the spaces, and then reverse the order of the letters backwards. 
in a language you know, that would be difficult, right? It would be difficult to figure out what that, where you would have to fit the spaces, where you would have to put the vowels to figure out what that English that you understand was saying. Now, put that into an ancient language that nobody speaks today that only has about 10,000 total words to English is roughly 200,000 in regular translation. You have to map 10,000 words to 200,000 words. And now you get a, just the smallest glimpse of what Bible translators are going through. So you might, and you may have seen, right? All, the, all of you reading ancient Hebrew, show of hands, you might have seen this, where they have it, and they have tried to split. They have it with spaces now, and they have it with jots and tittles and things, dots. That's supposed to represent the vowels. None of that existed. That's all been added later by scholars trying to say, this is, this is my best guess, educated guess, but best guess at what this author was trying to say. It is a hard, hard job to figure out what the Bible, the biblical writers were trying to convey through their words. And then we get to the New Testament, and at least it's in Greek. Greek has spaces. Woo! We're making progress. It has vowels. Awesome. It doesn't have punctuation. No punctuation. No chapters. No verses. All of that was added. Believe it or not, chapters and verses were added in like the 1600s. We We are closer to chapters and verses than Jesus was. Like, seriously. So... We don't have any punctuation, we don't have any chapters, we don't have any verses, so now we're just looking at this block of text and trying to figure out, okay, where did the author want to put emphasis? Where were they talking about what somebody else? The red letters of Jesus? Somebody's interpretation. Educated, absolutely. But we're guessing. We didn't have quotes. We don't know exactly who's quoting who all the time. We don't know how all of that works. So we're doing our best with the information available, again, to translate a dead language that nobody speaks into modern ways that we can understand it. And I'd like to give you an example of why this matters so, why this can matter just so much. It's a bit tangential to the Lord's Prayer, so I hope you'll, you'll afford me that as we kind of go on this journey together, because I read a fascinating paper a while back on the writings of Paul to the church in Corinth. And I think it shows just how different an interpretation can be from just something as simple as a punctuation mark. Throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul had a few times seemed to be quoting from somebody, some some invisible person where maybe a letter was written to him and he was responding to the church in Corinth or he had heard, hey, so-and-so in the church was saying this. And so Paul quotes them back He writes down what they said, and then he responds, typically with a rhetorical question, but not always. And it's usually a rebuke of what was said. And we see this throughout the letter. I want to give you a couple easy examples, and then we'll look at one that's a little bit harder. So an easy example is at the beginning in chapter 1. In chapter 1, it says this, and this is what I mean that commonly among you one says. There you go. He's even telling us that somebody says One says, I hold to Paul, and another, I hold to Apollos, and a third, I hold to Cephas, that's Peter, and fourth, I hold to Christ. And then here's the rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I hope you under, I hope you see he, through this that it's a rhetorical question because you don't need to. You should know the answer. It's not an act, it's not a real question. Paul was obviously not crucified for them. Paul's writing the letter. It's hard to be both. So, so there's this rhetorical answer of like you said this, but that's not right. Like that's not right at all. So this is Paul rebuking them. And another example in chapter 6, we get a few in a row where it says, God has raised up the Lord and will raise up by his power. And we get this rhetorical question or rhetorical answer to that kind of this question that is, is implied here. Do you not consider that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Do you not understand that he who couples himself with a harlot has become one body with her? So we have this thing where Paul is setting up a situation and then he's rebutting it through rhetoric. And it happens at least a dozen times throughout the, book, the letter to the Corinthians. Other times it's more subtle. You might have heard the verse that comes actually right before these verses where it says, all things are permissible to me, but not all things are beneficial. And he says, and he says it again, all things are permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And without punctuation, it's very easy to hear all of that in Paul's voice. That Paul says, everything's fine, but not everything's good. Everything's fine, but I'm not going to let it control me. But modern scholarship has started to really look at the syntax and language choice of, of authors. We do this in English too, right? You can, you can read a poem... And the best English scholars out there can tell you who wrote it without knowing the author. Because there's writing style, and there's word choice, and there's syntax, and cadence, and all of that says this connects to Poe, or this connects to Shakespeare, or, or what have you. And we can do that with the, with the writers of the Bible as well. In fact, there's a reason that a lot of modern scholarship is now coming out and saying Paul probably only wrote 60% of the letters that are attributed to him in the Bible. Because the syntax and the word choice and all of that is so different between them that the idea that they're all the same person doesn't really line up from a scholarship standpoint. <clears throat> and so we have the same thing here where we're looking at this syntax and, and scholars are saying, well, this doesn't line up. It doesn't look like from the ancient Greek that Paul is saying everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. It makes more sense to say he's quoting someone saying, so this arguer, this invisible person is saying, well, everything is permissible. And Paul is responding and saying, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. And then the arguer comes back and says, well, everything is permissible. And Paul says, yeah, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then the invisible person says, well, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And Paul says, and yet God will get rid of both. You have this rhetoric back and forth and back and forth of Paul saying, this is, what I, this is what you're hearing people say in your community. And Paul saying, and this is me rebuking it for you because it's not right. You guys have missed the boat on this piece. And we, we don't see that because we don't have a punctuation mark to tell us that this is a quote and this is not or, or what have you. So we see this again and again, this syntax and language style throughout the letter. And this paper that I was reading shows that how grammatically... The following passage follows exactly the same writing style in Greek. This is a passage many of you are probably familiar with. Let me just read it as, as it exists. It says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 
and he is in all other congregations of the saints. Let your wives keep silence in the congregations, for it is not permitted to them to speak, but let them be under obedience, as the law says. If they wish to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is unseemly for women to speak in the congregation. Did the word of God come forth from you, or did it come to you only? For centuries, this passage has been and still is today used to oppress half of the population in some churches. But if we take the same narrative structure of the other examples in the letter, it should read, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, and he is in all the congregations of the saints. And then in quotes, Let your wives keep silent in the congregations, for it is not permitted to them to speak. But let them be under obedience, as the law says. If they wish to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is unseemly for women to speak in the congregation. And then the rhetorical rebuttal. Did the word of God come forth from you? Or did it come to you only? I know you are all just utterly riveted by ancient Greek syntax like I am. <laughs> I know it. <clears throat> and I mean that, I mean that honestly, I am, I am riveted by ancient Greek syntax. I love this stuff. The you here, did it come to you only? Is it important you? Because there are lots and lots and lots of ways to say you plural in Greek. And this one is specifically masculine plural. It is the one that doesn't include women. Because this is a rhetorical question to the men who said women stay silent. Amen. Seriously. And Paul says, did the word of God come forth from you? Did it come from you only? And the only right answer is no. The word of God comes to everybody. Anybody can be a prophet. Anybody can be a preacher. Anybody can be a teacher. And y'all are getting it wrong. Read like this, Paul is outright rebuking the idea that women should be silent. With one small change, just quotation marks in two places. The meaning of the passage entirely changes. It's a rant against men who try to say that they have the word of God in them alone. And Paul says, absolutely not. And it's because of things like this that I always caution people saying, the Bible clearly says blank. Because the Bible clearly says that women should be silent. Except that it doesn't. And it likely says the opposite of that. The Bible clearly says that the earth was created in six days with a specific order. Except it doesn't. There are two completely conflicting narratives within two chapters of each other at the beginning of Genesis. Because it's allegory, not a history book. The Bible clearly says that all you have to do is say a sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. Except it doesn't. In fact, 
Almost every single time Jesus talks about anything salvation related, it has to do with works, not grace. Him and Paul might have actually argued on that just a little bit. Because Paul says, if you say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only him who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we could do a year of Bible study on what it means to be saved. The point is, the Bible doesn't clearly say anything about it. The Bible clearly says... The homosexuality is a sin, except it doesn't. And the word homosexual wasn't even in the Bible until the 1940s, less than a hundred years ago. And people are so certain that they are right, that the Bible clearly says that that's wrong, that this church is about to split over that one thing. I would argue that the Bible clearly says almost nothing. And that's okay. God gave us a spirit of discernment. God gave us the Holy Spirit inside of us to come together as us in a community of believers to help discern truth. And so I would caution so, so heavily how we use the Bible to say it clearly says something, lest it become a tool to exclude others, as it has been used for centuries. Thank you for going on my side trip. It does relate here to the Lord's Prayer because syntax comes in here too. Pastor Jerry in his sermon during the the traditional services this morning suggests that we should look at this part of the Lord's Prayer with a comma in a place that maybe you haven't seen it before. And it comes right after the second word, well, third word if you count the and, I guess. Throw a comma right in there after us. And lead us. Pause. Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Forgive us as we forgive others and lead us. not into temptation, but helping us come out of evil. We could even then say this prayer as lead us, God, not to the places we want to go in our weakness, but towards what is good and holy. Pull us out when we fall in the pit and set us on our feet on the right path again. Which again, takes us. It is our choices Ultimately, we choose whether we put ourselves close to temptation. We choose whether we look onto another path and decide that we'd rather be there, temptation adjacent or even full inside of it. Praying God lead us is accepting that we, what we, that we want what is better and promising to make our own effort in that direction also. It ties directly to how we talked about sin a few weeks ago. I defined sin for us as a culpable disturbance of shalom. Shalom being the peace that God intended from the beginning. It's what existed in the Garden of Eden and what will be in the kingdom of God. A place of harmony and completeness and no more hunger and no more tears and and peace and prosperity as God's people are all together. 
And we can work towards that now. And sin is when we choose to go the other way. We have a fork in the road at our decisions that says this is the way towards shalom, this is the way towards peace and the way God desires for me to interact with the world and my community and my family and my neighbors. And this is the way that leads away from those things. And we have a choice. Are we going to walk towards shalom? Are we going to choose to walk away from it? And so we say, lead us. Because I'm not good at making the right choice a lot of the time. Lead us, God. Not toward the path that I want to take. Not towards this path that leads away from your design and your peace that makes it more comfortable for me in this moment but doesn't change the world in a way that leads towards your love. Lead us so I can choose this one more. And when I choose this one, which I'm going to do again and again and again until I'm all the way over here, deliver us from the evil that we put ourselves in. Get me back to here so I can take, start taking the shalom path again. Help us to make the choice of shalom, of your way, of your kingdom. And when we screw it up and we're in the muck and the evil and the greed and the pride of the world, help us back onto the path and away from those things. My hope and prayer for us as we continue our lives forward today is that we can recognize that this prayer is both a request to God and a renewed promise that we will work to move ahead toward the kingdom of God, avoiding temptation and living into a community that helps each other when temptation does get the best of us. Amen.
And we feel like we're spiraling downward into unfamiliar and frightening places. Places where our hearts should never go. Rescue us, Jesus, from the temptation to live a life without you as our center, as our first in everything. You are first to conquer our fears and our sin. First to calm our life filled with storms. First to always be with us, care for us, and love us without fail, never turning us away. God, thank you for being our way out from temptation and hearing our pleas for help. Broken as we are, Jesus, we are here for you, your ragtag army of Christians. Thank you, gracious one, for being here for us always. And thank you for the Lord's Prayer that we say together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory,
here in the Methodist Church. We believe in an open table, which means you don't have to be a member of this church or any church to share with us in communion. The only thing we ask is that you desire a deeper relationship with God. But we recognize that the us that we pray about isn't just the people who showed up for church this morning. It's not just the people who have ever been in the church building. It's not the people who ascribe to a specific anything. Us is humanity, God's creation, and all are welcome at the table. Here in a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward. The basket on the right. You can drop your action card if you filled it out. Let us know you're here, but also how we can best get you involved in the ministries happening here at Noblesville First. If you have a prayer request or something we can help you with, let us know how we can serve you and how we can get you plugged in to serving. If you brought an offering this morning and you'd like to give it as an act of worship, you can drop it in that basket as well. The basket on the right contains communion cups. There's a, a wafer on top and a cup of juice underneath. We invite you to grab one of those. You can take it back to your seat and take the elements together if you'd like. You can kneel here at the altar, light a candle, say a prayer, whatever it is that draws you into worship with God this morning. As we remember, we remember the night that Jesus was killed. He was eating with his us, with his community, the people that he walked with and ate with and broke bread with. And he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his friends and he said, eat all of you. This is my body, which is for you. And then after supper, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he gave it to his friends and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. As you prepare to come this morning, I, I suggest that maybe you take a moment and you say the Lord's Prayer again in your heart. Ask God that he would lead us today. That this community here would be a community that strives for nothing but looking like the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for this morning that you are here. God, we thank you that you lead us. And that when we screw up, when we choose to move away from shalom again and again and again, when we put ourselves into evil situations or when the world surrounds us with evil, you are there to deliver us. God, open our hearts to you today. Help us to recognize that that deliverance comes as peace. transcends understanding. Help us to open our eyes to your world that we would see the evil that you would have us to go and love against. Fill us, God, to say and lead us. And 
ask as we do each week that you make these gifts of food and drink for us to be the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is open, friends. you to stand and join us as we close in worship this morning.